This is a bonus episode. My podcasts usually come out on Sundays, but I wanted to say thank you to everyone who listens and supports the Atomic Hobo podcast. I've had a recent flurry of people join my Patreon, and I woke up this morning to a beep from Gmail telling me that yet another person had signed up. That was Richard Hewitt, so thank you Richard. You put me in a good mood this morning and I thought, let's do a special midweek podcast to say thank you to everyone. We do seem to have a lot of new listeners just now. Maybe it's because coronavirus has turned our thoughts towards coping with disaster. Or maybe it's just because I do a brilliant podcast. Whatever the reason, thank you everyone. And I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. So today we're going to do another four minutes of Threads episode. For listeners who might be new to this, it's an occasional series where we examine four minutes of the nuclear war film Threads. Today is the fourth in our occasional series, so we're starting from 12 minutes into the film. Milk. It starts with milk. We've covered the symbolism of milk in previous Threads episodes, and I even did a whole episode on milk and nuclear accidents. Check that one out if you haven't heard it. It's called Windscale and the Atomic Milk. So our 12 minutes begins with Alison doing her homework and her mum hands her a glass of milk. Alison is a good girl. She's wholesome and sensible. And here she is, the epitome of being a good girl, drinking healthy milk and listening to classical music on her personal stereo. There's no Duran Duran for her, no sugary Coca-Cola, Alison is clearly a sensible, studious, diligent girl. And yes, she will surely go on to have a great career, perhaps as a doctor or an academic. Oh. Oh. Actually. No, she won't. So Alison is doing her homework in front of the TV. Okay then, so she's not a completely model student, but that's the realism of the film. She's from a very obviously working class family, who live in a cramped terraced house. So there's no point pretending that the Kemp family have a library in a separate wing of the house or they've got a book lane study or dining room they can give her to do her homework. No, she's sitting in the room with everyone else, in front of the TV, doing her homework. And, diligent that she is, the flicker of the TV and the quiet burbling of the newsreader gradually filters through her classical music and through her concentration and she lifts her head to the TV and pushes her headphones aside to listen to the news. She's one of the few characters in the film who actually listen to the news. Far too often in threads, people disregard it and go on with their daily lives. And, dare I say it, we see a lot of that just now. I've just read this morning on the BBC website an article about Boots employees who are frustrated that customers are still ambling into their shops to buy fake tan and hair dye. Oblivious, oblivious to everything. The news report which captures Alison's attention is about the sinking of an American submarine, the Los Angeles. Of course, this is fiction, 
But there was a US sub called Los Angeles who was active at this time. She was launched back in the 70s and was still hard at work decades later, becoming in 2007 the oldest sub in active service with the US Navy. Now, let's talk a bit about life on nuclear submarines. Of course, this is not a military history podcast. And so I say let's look at life on the boats, its absolute weirdness and the strange rules and traditions the crew have to follow. Of course, the strangest aspect of Britain's nuclear submarines is the eerie letters of last resort, which each British Prime Minister has to write and which are then locked in safes on board each of our four nuclear submarines, only to be opened in the event of nuclear Armageddon. See my episode, Letters of Last Resort, if you want to know more about that. Now, my source here for our quick look at some of the strange aspects of nuclear submarine life is the book The Silent Deep by Peter Hennessy, Cold War geeks, of course, will know him, and James Jinks. It's a mammoth book, and I don't pretend to have read every chapter because I'm not particularly interested in military history or naval history. Instead, I skim through it and zoom in on the bits that interest me. I suppose reading it like a magpie, picking out the good bits about submarine life and its eccentricities, especially the way it crosses over with the unleashing of nuclear war. So let me give you some strange little aspects here. One chapter talks about the quality of food aboard submarines. And of course, being at sea for so long and unable to give away their location, they can't exactly get an Amazon delivery of fresh fruit and veg. So could the cook ever whiz up some decent chow? The book says, quoting a former submariner, we seemed to subsist on a staple diet of bangers, beans and babies' heads. Babies' heads being an especially glutinous variety of steak and kidney pudding often with a rib-sticking cabinet pudding known as figgy duff or ziz pud for afters. And there was always the favourite brand of tinned, skinned tomatoes known as train smash. Actually, it's interesting they refer to babies' heads because um, in my book there's a chapter on the Royal Observer Corps and about life down in their tiny little monitoring posts, their mini nuclear bunkers built for three men, And I went out to some old monitoring posts, interviewed people from the ROC, and I asked them about um, food. You know, what were your rations like down there? And did you ever try them just to see what it would have been like had nuclear war come? And a lot of them mentioned eating babies' heads, which, as this book says, were puffy, glutinous steak and kidney puds. So that's the second time babies' heads have popped up in my nuclear research. Another strange aspect of life on board the boats is um, the disposal of rubbish. And our former submariner here tells us that in the old days, the ritual of getting rid of the rubbish was called ditching gash, when bins of rubbish were hauled up the conning tower and ditched over the side from the bridge. But in the newer boats, he says, garbage is chopped up, packed in special weighted containers and fired overboard through a garbage ejector, a fitting like a miniature torpedo tube. But something which I think is even stranger is reading of the submarine commanding officer who had religious beliefs. 
And of course, one had to combine that with the fact that you were ready for nuclear Armageddon. You were ready, perhaps, if, if called upon, to launch nuclear missiles. So how could you be a religious man whilst carrying all that potential death around with you? And so we hear of the, the CEO, uh, Michael Henry, who composed what was known as a prayer for Polaris. And he included that in the Christian service he conducted while on patrol. And I shall read you the prayer. Lord, thou command us, saying, thou shall not kill. Thou knowest that we prepare ourselves constantly to kill, not one, but thousands. And that by this preparation, we believe we help to preserve peace among nations. Do thou, who gave man the knowledge to fashion this terrible weapon, give him also the sense of responsibility to control its use, so that fear for the consequences may indeed maintain peace until that day when love, not fear, shall control all men's actions. Give us the will, but never the wish, to obey the orders to fire. O God, if it is thy will, grant that that order may never need be given. Amen. Okay, so back to threads. We leave Alison watching her news report and we switch instantly, in the way threads goes, to documentary style. Threads does that constantly, flips you between drama and documentary. So this little documentary style segment has the narrator telling us that Britain has plans for war, which would see power transferred from central government in London and devolved to all the local authorities around the country. As we hear this, the camera pans across a scene of Sheffield's Town Hall, a grand old Victorian building with a hideously ugly modern extension attached to it, which was built in 1977. Due to its weird modern design, it was nicknamed by locals the Egg Box. And we zoom into the Egg Box, go through a window, and see inside the head of the local council. The man who, when war approaches, will be given awesome powers over Sheffield. Now, do we see this man about to become eminently powerful at a huge desk, plotting and planning and brooding? No, he's pottering around the office with a plastic watering can, tending to some pretty flowers in delightful shades of lilac, white and pink. That's our first sight of the man who'll lead Sheffield through the coming Holocaust. As typewriters clatter away in the background and as a secretary bustles in and out with papers, he's oblivious to it all, tending to the posies. Our next scene is a typically northern one. We see a smoky factory and its whistle blows, telling workers it's time to clock off. Of course, the wail of the factory whistle sounds a bit like a nuclear siren and is probably included here to foreshadow the moment when the sirens will start to wail. And of course, the sight of this factory is a reminder that Sheffield is an industrial city and so is therefore a huge target in the coming war. 
It's now Tuesday, May 17th, and we see a newspaper front page telling us paratroops go in, US acts on Iran. So we have news reports in the background and we have glances at newspaper front pages, all of which are reminding us that in the background war is building up. But let's see what was on the real front pages on Tuesday, May the 17th. I take that to mean the year of 1983. Of course, Thread was broadcast in 84, but I'm assuming it was set in 83, the year in which it was made. And in that year, yes, May 17th was indeed a Tuesday. Well, on that day, The Guardian seemed quite relaxed. Their front page was mainly about the commencement of the 1983 general election campaign. And their top story was a sketch about the Liberal Party launching their campaign, with the headline, Early Birds Catch the Squirms. At the foot of the front page was a news and brief section, which had the following top stories. Mutton destroyed. 15 tonnes of English mutton was among food destroyed when foreign lorries were stopped by French farmers yesterday. And another story mentioned on the front page. Clampdown. Wheel clamps were used against illegally parked vehicles for the first time yesterday. And of course, the eternal news, which you can find in every British newspaper, the weather showers. And what about the times from that day? Yeah, it seems they were less relaxed than The Guardian, less concerned with liberals and mutton. Their front page story, yes, was about the election, about Labour's election pledges, But over on the left of the front page, we see the following headline. Reagan plea to avert maniac war. The article says, President Reagan, insisting he wants arms cuts, said yesterday the world could not go on as it was without, quote, some fool or some maniac or some accident triggering the kind of war that is the end of the line for all of us. And casting her eyes across the local papers on that day, Tuesday 17th May 1983, were they stricken with nuclear tension and anxiety? Well, the Belfast Telegraph reported, Don't forget the fruit gums, ma'am. And the story says, The Queen accepted a packet of fruit gums from five-year-old Darren Sadler yesterday and told him she thought she might need them. Their meeting came in York, where 10,000 people cheered as the royal visitor toured the city centre. The royal visitor, dressed in kingfisher blue, was admitted to the city following an ancient ceremony in which the Lord Mayor, Mr Philip Booth, offered the state sword of York, which the Queen simply touched. So there, the Queen gets fruit gums from a wee boy. And so, back to threads. We get more news reports of the US going into Iran, and as ever, most of our characters just don't care. Middle class Mr Beckett is paying attention, reading his big important Daily Telegraph, but not Jimmy. No, Jimmy is at work, the implication being that the workers are too busy toiling and have no time to lounge about with tea in the Telegraph. Ruth is busy too, although she's not at work, she's in her kitchen, opening a tin of whiskers for the cat. And yes, there's a milk bottle on the worktop before her. My God, so many milk bottles in this film. 
The scene changes. We see a letter being typed out to Clive Sutton. That's our council leader who was previously seen in the egg box attending to his flowers. The letter, according to the letterhead, is from the Home Office and we know that can't be good. We get a glimpse of the contents which speak of emergency arrangements and cautioning against causing undue public alarm. And then the clattering for the typewriter stops, the scene changes, and we hear instead a sound familiar to most of us, I'm sure, from the 1980s. The football score is being read out on the radio. Young Michael has the radio on in the background whilst he plays at home. He's, of course, Jimmy's younger brother, and he's mucking about with a toy airplane. The horrible, noisy clatter of the typewriters had stopped for this short scene of a child playing. But then they start up again as we're back to the council offices, where moves are now afoot to instigate emergency powers and the transition to war. The council office is an open-plan thing, ugly in a very 1980s way, jammed with clunky brown wooden desks, horrible strips of fluorescent lighting guaranteed to give you a headache behind the eyes. There are lots of dried-out plants stuck in dried-out pots. And, of course, there are women everywhere typing, typing, typing. No men stuck at the typewriters. No, no, they're off doing the important things. And, yes, we cut to a room where there are two men discussing something mighty important. In his private office at the egg box, Clive Sutton has just received that home office letter and it was delivered by hand by a policeman. Clive is a decent sort. We can assume that from the way he was caring for flowers earlier. It introduced him as a man with a heart, not a robotic politician. But his manners almost desert him, almost, as the policeman leaves, giving him a salute and a thank you. But Clive is so engrossed in this frightening letter that he doesn't even lift his eyes to the departing cop, but just mutters a quiet thank you. We see the torn envelope on his desk, marked in bold red type, secret eyes of the addressee only. And he reads its dreadful contents, knowing that this means war. And again, the radio is on in the background. And it's lovely. It's the cheering, warm voice of Terry Wogan. Oh, ordinary life, how lovely you are. Poor Clive unlocks a drawer and pulls out a black folder stamped War Book Volume 1. And while he's in the office grappling with the approach of war, opening the dreaded War Book, outside in the foyer, the policeman is in no hurry to leave. He's perched on the desk, enjoying a cup of tea and a chat with his secretary. Now, I wonder if that's quite hard to believe. After all, Threads is utterly realistic. How realistic is it that the policeman can linger like that and have tea and a bit of a gossip? We can assume that policemen in Sheffield don't dash around every day delivering top-secret letters in a time of international tension. So wouldn't he have an inkling what was in it? And so would be in no mood for tea and gossip? Even if he was in the mood, wouldn't he be under strict orders to get back to his station? But the tea and blabbering is cut short when Clive rings her from his desk and orders her into action. There is a list of names in his war book and she is to ring them and summon them all to his office immediately. The list contains the names of his emergency committee 
who will effectively run the city after the war starts. And it includes people like the food officer, the manpower officer, the environmental health officer. As we've discussed in previous episodes, some of the people on these lists might not have known they'd been selected for wartime service. And so there was always a risk that when they got the call, they wouldn't comply with the order. Clive's secretary might phone them and summon them into the office and once they realised what was in store and that it involved leaving their families and staying in the city throughout the attack, they might just run for the hills. And then comes a scene which is alarmingly familiar to us all just now. It's busy for a Wednesday, isn't it? I think it was Christmas. Food, 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 always food. In times of approaching disaster, thoughts always turn to food. As they do with Clive Sutton as we go back to the egg box, approaching our fourth minute here. He's assessing the emergency food stocks and learns that we have corned beef. But he's not so anxious yet that he's not able to crack a joke, saying, I hope it's not from Argentina. Remember, of course, that the Falklands War had taken place the year before. So even though it's obvious to those who are paying attention in the film that war is coming, and not just any war, nuclear war, our policeman is able to perch on the table and enjoy a cup of tea with the secretary, and Clive is able to crack a joke. Is that because they're simply not paying attention? Or is it a natural and understandable human instinct to flinch and not look the thing directly in the eye? So there we are at the end of our four minutes of threads. As I said at the beginning, this has been a bonus episode uh, as a way of saying thank you to all the listeners, everyone who shares and retweets this podcast, everyone who recommends it to friends, and of course everyone who supports me with a donation each month through Patreon. My two latest patrons are Richard Hewitt and Wayne, so thank you to both of you for signing up. If you want to join my Patreon and donate something each month to the podcast please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. There are now 103 patrons. And let me also say a quick thank you to the No Name Kid, Adam Gilmore, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Alan Christie, Helen McHale and Douglas Greenshields. I'll be back on Sunday at the usual podcast schedule. I hope you enjoyed this little reminder of threads. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>